Hey, good morning, everybody. Go ahead and have a seat, and uh, let's dive in. And hey, wow, what a sparse crowd today, huh? If you're new here, welcome. Uh, fortunately or unfortunately, depends on how you see it, the area director of Young Life goes to this church, and uh, this is family camp weekend, and they are somewhere where it's cold and rainy, so there. No, we love them, and uh, we're thankful that they're there, but... Uh, what I love about these Sundays is that uh, I do believe deeply that the God that we serve is intentional and that who is here is who God intended to be here. And what we're talking about today actually is for you. Uh, and maybe God has you here as a part of his divine purpose and his plan to speak to you about something. In fact, um, We've been talking about leadership, and we've been studying the book of Nehemiah, and we've been talking about the importance of becoming the kind of leaders that are mature and dynamic in this world that we live in, not just in the world, but also in this city, but also in our homes, but also especially in our own lives, that we bring mature leadership into our own lives. And that leadership really does it matter. And those of us that know this Jesus, we have this amazing, this incredible advantage. Because something has happened to us. Like, let me read for you just for a second. This is out of, um, this is out of 1 Peter. If you have a Bible, it's at the very end, almost to the book of Revelation at the end of the Bible. And this, this book is talking a little bit about us and about uh, what the Lord is doing. This is 2 Peter chapter 1, uh, verse 4. Through these, he's given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Let me go back. He says, through these precious promises that we've been given, we get to participate in the divine nature. In fact, Scripture kind of helps us understand that better. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it says, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives inside of you? That God's Spirit is dwelling within us. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it says, Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. That the Spirit of God is dwelling within us. That we're living this life where we get to participate with the divine nature of God. And if that is true, if that is true about us, then Romans chapter 12, verse 2 is powerful. And I'll try to read it slow. Don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world. What is this world? that we're not participating with the divine nature, that God's spirit doesn't live in us, that this life that we live, we gotta figure it out, we gotta do it right, we gotta figure out how to get what we want out of this life, that we're leaving that pattern, we're leaving to a new pattern, and it says, but we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. And what's this renewal? That we understand who the Lord is. But more importantly, we understand who we are. And then it says, then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good pleasing and perfect will so what we're going to talk about this morning and then we're going to come to this table just real quick is what is the will of god what is it like for you specifically for you i mean we know that it, we know the general will of god that the lord has given us the ten commandments he's given us the will to know him we've been talking about how nehemiah 
had this amazing horizontal life, that he had this amazing career, but he also had developed this vertical life with God that gave power to his horizontal life. But what is the will of God for your life? In fact, it's actually really essential that not only do we discover God's will, but we first take the step to believe that he has a will for you. In Ephesians, throwing a lot of passages at you early on, but hang with me. Ephesians 2, it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So this transformation that takes place with us, where we've been given the Holy Spirit, we've had our mind renewed, is for good works. And then it says, which God prepared ahead of time for you to walk in. What he's saying there is that God has a plan for your life. And he has crafted you uniquely for this plan that he has for your life. So how do we discover that? Okay. So um, I'm going to try to give you a broad outline of how you can discover God's will for your life. And we're going to find this in Nehemiah chapter 2, and Elise is going to come and read for us. And as she comes up, let me just kind of give you a little bit of history. Nehemiah is this book in the Old Testament. What had happened was that the city of Jerusalem had been ransacked uh, by the Babylonians, and then the Babylonians were ransacked by the Persians, and Cyrus the Great actually overtook Nebuchadnezzar. And so Nebuchadnezzar had taken the Jews uh, captive, Cyrus the Great let them go back, and then several kings followed after Cyrus the Great. Artaxerxes now is sitting on the throne. There's a few Jews back in Jerusalem that are trying to rebuild the city. They'd rebuilt the the temple, uh, but the gates of the city and the walls of the city were all crumbling, and there were enemies all around them. And Nebuchadnezzar was the cupbearer to the king of Persia. So I want you to just get your imagination going. This, This is a good Jewish dude who loved the nation of Israel, and he is the most important member of the king of Persia's uh, kind of his cabinet. And we call him the cupbearer. And he had heard news that the temple had been rebuilt, but the city was in danger, and his heart was broken because he loved God's people. And so he's been praying and everything, and he's trying to figure out what is the next step for me. So here's what we're going to do. When we think about God's will, then I want you to think about that uh, this is not a formula that guarantees this is going to display God's will for you. But when these things happen, you should stop and take notice that maybe God is speaking to you. Because the Lord loves to speak to his people. The first is when my passion, my passions actually come in collision with my gifts, okay? And then those two things come in collision with an open door. When those three things happen, my passions, my gifts, and then an open door of opportunity come together, I should take serious pause that maybe God is displaying for me his will for my life. Are you with me? Okay, remember, what we're doing right now is we're going to get a little bit of information. I want you to deal with your heart, and we're going to come to this table. Lisa, would you please read for us? Nehemiah 2, 1 through 10. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This cannot 
This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, What is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city of Judah, where my ancestors are buried, so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah? And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare. That was incredible. Thank you so much. So we're not going to talk about it, but verse 10, just take note that anytime you walk into the will of God, there's going to be opposition. We're going to be talking about that starting next week. But what a remarkable passage of scripture where uh, Nehemiah hears the news that the temple had been rebuilt, but the city gates were torn down, and these enemies were surrounding the city, and his heart was broke. In fact, if you go back to chapter 1, he said in verse 4, I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. For some days, and I mourned, and I fasted, and I prayed before the God of heaven, that he wept. And the time from him hearing that news to this moment with the king uh, is four months. So he didn't just weep for a day. He didn't just mourn for a day. This guy was grieving because something was stirring deep in his heart. Look at this. It says, In the month of Nisan, and the twelfth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought to him, I took the wine, and I gave it to the king, and I've not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad? How did the king know he was sad? Like, Nehemiah was a wreck. Like, he was torn apart. Everybody was like, whoa, bro, there is something wrong with you. What is going on? If your boss is looking at you and going, this ain't right, then something is stirring inside of you. And something was stirring inside of Nehemiah. He could not shake it that there was a passion that had been unleashed in his own heart that was displaying itself through sadness. Now just think about that for a minute. His profound passion for the people of God to have a place to worship him and to be safe and establish the nation of Israel was so heavy on him that it was causing him grief and sadness. Now let me go back. Remember we started this by saying, as believers, we have the spirit of the living God inside of us right? And as believers, we're challenged to know the will of God, which means we can know the will of God. And if we don't know the Holy Spirit is stirring inside of us, we'll never understand our sadness. Let me tell you, 
I've used this before, but it's such a great illustration. There's actually a television show that's called uh, I Didn't Know I Was Pregnant. Have y'all seen this? Where women go to the emergency room because they think they're dying. Like they're dying and they get in there and the doctor says, you're in labor. And they didn't even know they were pregnant. That's most Christians. I'm serious because most Christians, when we experience sadness, what's wrong with me? I hate my life. I'm miserable. What they don't realize is the Holy Spirit is stirring inside of them a sadness and a passion and a love for something that they're unaware. So they think there's something wrong with them when in fact there's something very right about you because you are spiritually alive whether you believe it or not. You tracking with me? So here we go. Nehemiah is hurting. And we've seen this. I remember a couple of years ago, I was asked by the mayor along with a number of other pastors to tour some of the public high schools. And we were at McGavick High School and the principal there, he knew we were all pastors and he looked at us and uh, he said, first, let me just say this, God called me to this school. We're all like, whoa, what's going on? He goes, no, I am called here because I have a passion for these teenagers. He says, I walk the hall all day, and this is my job. I tell them, I love you, and there's nothing you can do about it. He says, I am the church. Get this. And the church walks through these halls every day. And I smile all day long. And one of them said, why? Because if you study the stats of what's happened at McGavick High School, there's not a lot to smile about. And yet he says, I smile all day long, and this is a quote, because I know the presence of the Lord is here. That is passion. Do you think he feels sadness? Absolutely he does. Because you can't have passion without sadness. So let me ask you, do you know the passions in you? Like if you want to discover God's will for your life, and this is critical as a leader, because you could be an amazing leader and completely be leading in the wrong direction. <laughs> And leading away from the very thing that God is leading you to, the very purpose for which he made you, the very gifts that he's giving you for this divine purpose, and you're running that way, and the Holy Spirit's going, hey, back over here, where are you going? This is important, guys, this is really important, because it's so easily, it's so easy to be distracted by the values of this world. It's so easy for us to start to believe that what the world says we should be spending our lives doing is really what we should be spending our whole lives doing. And so we spend our whole lives comparing. We spend our whole lives discontent. We spend our whole lives grumbling to get something that when we do get it, we don't want it anyway. Because why? Because it's not connected to our passion. So here's my question for you. Do you know your passion? If you've got a pen, I'd, if, if I bored you already, I'm sorry. Or a pencil, write down that question. Do you know what your passions are? What moves you? Like, what causes you pain when it falls apart? Like, let me ask you this question. What do you get into or start thinking about or reading about or start putting your hands to that when you do it, you forget to eat? Like, you realize an hour too late that you actually have to go to the bathroom. Like, what consumes you like that? What do you love to talk about? What do your friends roll their eyes about when you bring up that topic again? Like, did you see this in the news? And they're like, yes, we saw that in the news. We don't want to talk about it anymore. What would you do if I wrote you a blank check right now and you never had to work for a dollar the rest of your life? What would you then go do? What would 
fire you up that you go, man, if I was just free, I would go chase after that right there. What is it? What moves your heart? What brings you to tears? What brings you to sorrow? What weighs heavy on your heart? And here's the sad news for most of us as Christians, and I'll just say this, and I, if you're a skeptic here, you're in good company. If you're somebody who's trying to figure out whether any of this is true or not, that's, that's great, but let me talk to the people that know Jesus. Most of us, we have run so far from our tears that we have killed our hearts, that we have convinced ourselves that feeling hurts too much, and we refuse now to get moved anymore. We've killed our hearts trauma has killed our hearts abuse have killed our hearts broken relationships have killed our hearts sin has killed our hearts and we've just said to our hearts you're just too dangerous and i got to put you in a cage and i got to put you over here and you're going to be safe now because i'm not going to let you out of that cage because the heart our passions are like a wild jungle because it won't be tamed and if you let that loose i'm promising you i'm just going to promise you you will not have your best life now. If you let your passions go, the idea of your best life now is going to get destroyed. You're going to be wrecked. We'll talk about that in a minute. You know, in Proverbs 3, it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. You know what that means? The next line, it says, don't trust your own understanding. What does that mean? Shut up. It means listen. Listen. It goes on to say, in all your ways, acknowledge him. And look what he'll do. He'll make your path straight. He says, be not wise in your own eyes. Don't be a know-it-all. Instead, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. That's not his will for your life. And when you turn to him and you turn away from him, it says it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. What does that mean? He's going to make your heart come alive. And some of you have stopped loving a long time ago. And the Lord says, turn back to me. Don't trust that. And let me breathe on you and make you alive. But when I do, it's going to hurt. Because that's what passions do. They hurt us. They stir us. They they tend to hurt the people around us because we irritate them. Okay, passions. The next step is gifts. Nehemiah, when the king asked... uh, hey, what do you want? He says, your majesty, would you be willing to give me a letter to the governors of the province west of Euphrates rivers so that I can travel safely to Judah? I'll need timber to rebuild the gates of the fortress near the temple and more timber to construct the city walls and to build a place for me to live. And so I would appreciate a letter to Asaph, who is in charge of the royal forest. God was good to me and the king did everything I asked. Here's what happened. The king goes, what do you need? And this is what Nehemiah did. Well, Odd thing that you should ask. And he had this whole list. Well, this is what I need. That's what I need. That's what I need. What, what was going on there? So Nehemiah was a cupbearer of the king, which means in many ways some historians believe that he was like chief of staff, that he was a guy that knew how to organize things. This is a Jew that has ascended to the high, one of the highest offices in the land, and he's serving the king of Persia. Crazy, like, story there. But this guy had mad skills. And you know what his mad skill wasn't? Knowing how to rebuild a burnt-down gate on a city wall. I bet you Nehemiah has never had a hammer and a chisel in his hands ever. He didn't know anything about rebuilding walls, masonry. I'm sure that he didn't lay brick on the weekends as his hobby. So how did he have this long list? 
Here was Nehemiah's mad skill. I know a guy. Nehemiah was a manager. Nehemiah had this crazy gift that he could see a project and go, who do I need to get into the room that knows how to do this stuff? I'm going to get them around the table. I'm going to get them going. Give me the list. Give me the list. I'm praying. What are you praying for? I'm praying for favor in the eyes of the king. I'm praying that God's going to open up the door, and if he does, I'm going to be ready. And he, start, he started doing Nehemiah. He, Nehemiah did Nehemiah. He understood his gifts, and he started using his gifts. What are your gifts? Do you know your gifts? When I understand my passions and then I begin to understand my gifts, my gifts awaken me to the preparation for the open door. And what are your gifts? Are you a manager? Is your gift music? Is your gift parenting? Some of you are gifted parents. Boy, we need you. Are you a builder? Are you a teacher? Is your gift giving? Some of you, your gift is generosity. Like you have a passion and you love putting quotes on your walls that says, make the last check bounce. Have you ever heard that? I've never heard that. That's not my gift, right? (laughs) The first check always bounces for me. The last one I don't have to worry about. But some of you have that gift. Some of you have the gift of praying. Some of, and you know how it shows itself? You leave here on Sunday morning, you go, man, when is Midtown going to get a prayer ministry? I can't believe that's sorrow, that's grumbling because passion is trying, you're pregnant, you don't know it, and it's trying to give birth to what God is calling you to and your giftedness. Maybe your gift is service. And I, you know, I could spend, we could do a weekend seminar on discovering your gifts. I don't think I need to do that because you have the internet. Like, you know, what's your Enneagram number? That starts to help. What's your disc? Have you ever taken the disc test? Your five strengths? Have you ever done that? Go do that. Become interested in yourself. You are God's creation. You're his workmanship. In Ephesians, we read it. You're the poetry that God wrote that no one has ever been like you and no one is ever going to be like you. And he decided to put you in this time, in this space, in this world right now. Become curious about you. And if those don't help at all, here is my go-to, and this is, I'm ADD, and so all that kind of work I get bored with. What I love is to do this. I go to my friends, and I go, tell me what you see. So I was in college, and I was studying to become a veterinarian, and I felt this passion for teenagers. And I found that I was going home on the weekends, my hometown and I was going to the place that I used to throw all these parties and I was going so I could look for opportunities to share the gospel with the little brothers and little sisters of the friends that I got high with when I was in high school and I began to see kids coming to the Lord and I had a deep passion for them and I began to wonder do I have the gifts to go into ministry so I went to my home church and I went to the pastor and their leadership and I said would y'all please tell me, do I have the gifts for this? You know what they said? They said, we don't know. So why don't you come to work for us and you run our youth ministry and in three months we'll give you our answer. So I submitted myself to those leaders that God had placed in my life and said, examine me, this is too important. I don't want to throw my life away and, and miss what God's will is for my life. And at the end of the three months, they came to me and said, oh, yeah, yeah, 
uh, yeah, that's, you got to do that. You're weird, and we don't know how God's going to use you. <laughs> you need to go to another church, but yes, God is going to use you, and some, that's what your job is. I know, church weirds me out. It's crazy you put me here, but then the final thing is, and we're, remember, we're running to this table, the door. See, you can have all the passion in the world to be a great musician, and you can have great gifts to be a great musician, but the door may never open up for you to have a career in music. You could have a great passion for medicine and desire with your whole being unrealistically that you want to be a brain surgeon, and you can't, you can't pass freshman chemistry. You probably are never going to see the door open. You see what I'm saying? Okay, nobody to laugh at that. All right. But when the door opens, look at verse 4. Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Isn't that beautiful? Once again, Nehemiah's vertical life is invading his horizontal life. In fact, it's giving power to his horizontal life two weeks ago. So I prayed to the king of heaven, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of of my father's graves that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, and isn't it odd that he says, and the queen was sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I'd given him a time. The door swung completely open. In Proverbs 16 it says, in their hearts humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. And what I say by that is that when you begin to understand your passions, which is a scary proposition to get to know yourself, because the world tells you don't do that, and your gifts, because then you have to start to grasp the fact that there are some places that you're not gifted, and that's a gift from God. Your limits are a gift from God. And when the door begins to open, it may not open in the way that you want it to open. But when you when you've foster the vertical life, now your attention is on the Lord, and you're saying, Lord, your timing. Your place, your way. One of my heroes is George Washington Carver. If you don't know about him, he was a scientist that was born a slave. He was one years old when the Emancipation Proclamation came and he was set free. He was actually the first black man to ever earn a, a Bachelor of Science degree. And he went on to become this scientist that created, uh, I don't even know the number of his inventions, but many would say that through his study and through his work, he created 300 applications of peanuts. And those inventions, those applications, not only transformed the economy of the South, some people say it saved the economy of the South um, and has transformed the way we even see how we do agriculture now. And listen to this quote, okay, because this man deeply loved Jesus. When I was young, I said to God, God, tell me the mysteries of the universe. But God answered, that knowledge. Passion, gifts, and when the door opens. Hang on. Because if, if I'm where, if you're with me right now, and you're going, okay. 
That's not always the formula for God's will. But when those three things happen, you should stop, seriously stop. And with the counsel of others and through much prayer, consider this may be God's way of leading you. Look at verse 2 before we end. Chapter 2, verse 2. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. And listen to his response internally. I was very much afraid. What was he afraid of? Why was he afraid? Well, let me tell you what he's afraid of. Because it's what I'm afraid of. And it's what you're going to be afraid of. Anytime we follow God for his will for our life... It is scary. It is scary because God is always taking you someplace that's bigger than you. Because he's taking you to the work that he's doing, not the work that you're doing. He's getting you in water so far over your head that it is a frightening proposition. Because my flesh, my worldly thinking, remember what you were talking about at the beginning? My worldly thinking is don't ever get in a situation where you're out of control. Don't ever get in a situation that you can't manage. Don't ever, don't ever get in a place where you don't know what's going to happen. And Jesus is saying, you've got to leave all that behind because you've got to trust in me, trust in what I'm doing. There's a new economy over here, and you've got to learn a new way to breathe. When I was in college, I taught swimming lessons to try to make some money. And so people would bring their kids, and I would teach their kids how to swim. And you know what the hardest thing to get kids to do when, it, when you start to teach them how to swim? Two things. One, what's that? Put their head underwater. That is the hardest thing. So you have to put money on the floor. You have to, you know, bribe them to go the floor of the pool. Like, can you go get that penny? Like, really, that penny's worth something. And the second thing is to let go of the side of the pool. And here, <laughs> I was working also as a part-time youth director, and the, the pastor's wife brought her kids to me to teach them how to swim. And here's what I did not know. She was terrified of water. She had... Uh, like literally this crazy phobia about uh, drowning. And so as her kids were getting in the pool, she was over there and she started to shake like this. And I promise you, as soon as I said, today we're going to put our heads up. As soon as you decide to put your head underwater and say, okay, Lord, I'll follow your will for my life, the world is going to go, no, you're not. No, you can't leave your job and go do that. No, 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 no. Do you know what that's going to cost you? No, no, no. Do they have insurance? Wait a minute. You can't go work at McGavick High School. Do you know how crazy the kids are there? Do you know the teen pregnancy rate? Do you know the gangs that are in that school? Oh, no. We're going to go to Brentwood. up your cross let's go you got to die to that because where i'm taking you is a new kind of living and people i, I love you guys because y'all are amazing people i mean here at midtown have you met mary trapnell you know she lived in brentwood still lives in brentwood and what about six seven years ago a friend took her to murfreesboro where they were feeding homeless people but most of the women
of the South two weeks ago, some of our women joined our church. Or how about 15 years ago when we had a good friend of mine who works in Africa came and I said, hey, you want to preach? He goes, yeah, I'll preach. And he preached. And we had a 10-year-old on the second row that went home and said, Daddy, I have a passion for kids in Africa. Well, what is my gift? She was so cute. Anything she asked, she would get. <laughs> what was the door? A bunch of adults got around her and go, what is it that you want to do? And she started Elliot's Run for Africa. And maybe you've been a part of that, but hundreds of thousands of dollars from that little girl got poured into Nairobi in a school. I mean, I could go on and on. I'll tell you, one of the most beautiful stories of God's will is one of my friends who's a pastor, when he was telling me his story, he grew up in a home that was full of chaos, and his mom and dad didn't get along, and his home was a dangerous place. And I said, well, was anything good? And he says, you know what, you know what gave me hope that there was a God? He said, I said, what? He said, my next door neighbor. I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, about once a week, my next door neighbor, this little old lady, would have me over. And we would have a tea party. And she would make me tea and she'd make me cookies. And she would just sit and say, tell me how you're doing. And he says, for an hour, this lady would just listen to the heartaches of a 10-year-old little boy. Is that God's will for her life? You betcha. When Jesus calls me to pick up my cross and follow him, here's my comfort. Before he ever calls me to do that, he did it. That's why we're here. Jesus took up his cross for you. Do you know what the passion of Jesus is? You. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What was the joy? You. Fellowship with you. Helping you become alive. You. What was his gifts? All of them. You've got them all. And he used every one of them to pick up that cross and go to Calvary's Mount and sacrifice his life for you. And what was the door? Now. Right now. That's the door. Is that the Savior who gave his life for you, not so that you'd just be forgiven of sins, but so that you would be alive, a spirit of living God dwelling in you, that your heart would be awakened to passions and you'd understand the Holy Spirit has given you gifts and he is opening doors and saying, I dare you to open your eyes. But when you do, it's going to be messy. Annie Dillard, she's written a bunch of books. She's written a lot of articles. And she talks about what we're doing right now, sitting here in church. She goes, it is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should be issuing, <laughs> ushers should be issuing life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews, for the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense, or the waking God may draw us out of where we can never return. That's what this table is. It's simply saying, Lord, I trust you. I come and I confess my need for you and I confess how I've resisted you in so many ways, how I've loved things I should not have loved and I've not loved the things that I should love. And we come to this table and we taste and we drink God's grace upon you to forgive you, 
to care for you, to restore you, and to heal you. So we're about to come to this table, and let me read for you the words of Paul. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also have passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread or drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So what we're about to do is, this is we're not doing this in memorializing what Christ did for us. Literally, the Lord says, this is my gift, the sacrament that I give you. It's a means of grace to come and meet with Jesus. And the reason that we do kneelers here is we want you to participate. Midtown's not a show. This is the body of Christ that we come and partake of Christ. And so we want you to get up from your seat. Come if you want to stand. You can stand if you want to kneel. You can kneel, whatever you need to do to come and worship the Lord. And when you're ready for those that are serving, uh, to serve you, put your hands out and they'll serve you. And if you come to this table here and something the Lord is doing in you this morning, you need the prayer of the saints over you, then just, just cross your chest. You don't even need to say anything. And whoever's serving will just stop what they're doing and pray over you because we need each other. The way we do it here is I'm about to pray and the band's going to come back in and they're going to lead us in worship. And um, since the crowd is small, just come whenever you're ready in any way you want to come. Take any aisle, you know. And um, But I want to just encourage you, this is a time of worship. So don't see this as a, as a religious ceremony, but a time for you to be with Jesus. And don't miss the Holy Spirit speaking to you right now. As he speaks to you about your passions and your gifts, and the doors that he is opening, even if the doors just this morning to stop running and come back. Lord, we thank you that you don't have to do this. Like, you don't have to save us and also pour on us grace. You don't have to look at us in our sin and then clothe us with the finest of clothings by giving us your Holy Spirit. You don't have to, but yet you do. That you, you ask us to trust your unfailing love, that your love will never fail. Whether that love is rebuking us or trying to wake us up or calling us away from the shiny things that we're drawn to and calling us to you. And so, Lord, I don't know what you're doing in this room right now or why uh, this crowd is who you wanted here this morning, but we trust right now as we come to this table that you'll meet us and speak to us and wake us up, Lord, for your glory, which is always for our good. Lead us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.